As you take your seats this morning, if you'll open up to the book of Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7 there in the Old Testament. All right, there we go. Ezra chapter 7, we're going to be talking about breakthrough observed today. We're in the middle of a series uh, called Breakthrough. If, you, if you've not been with us over the last month or so, we're walking our way through this Old Testament book of Ezra and, and seeing how God brought some amazing breakthroughs in the life of, lives of a, of a people who had been devastated, uh, who had experienced the very worst of times, and God was bringing them out that time of misery, that, that time of, of downtroddenness, and bringing them in uh, farther and deeper in to the very promises that he had already made to that people. And we all long for these moments of breakthrough, to see God do something greater than we've ever seen before, to, to see him explode onto the scene of our own lives, to, to fix our marriages, to, to redeem the, the messes that we've made, to do immeasurably more than all we ask or think, as the Apostle Paul says. This is the picture of breakthrough. And here in Ezra 7, we see some amazing things happening as the people trusted God in ways they had not for a very long time. Let me set this book up for you just to help you. Um, when we read the Old Testament, sometimes we, we, it can become very confusing because in our culture, when we think of history, we think of a chronological series of events. Okay, when, when, when I come home for the day, uh, my wife asks me, how was your day? I begin, this is the way I think, I think in terms of how my day went, for, uh, this happened, then this happened, I met with this person, had this conversation, ate lunch here, and the course of the day lays out kind of one piece to the next. And when my wife shares about her day, she kind of thinks like Ezra does. Okay, it's not chronological, it's thematic. It's the, the top shelf things come first, and I have to put the pieces together. Okay, how many of you have a, have a spouse like that? Raise your hand. I don't know when happened at what time, but I know it was important to her. The first thing that always comes out on the list is, how was J.D. today? And even if I don't ask, he's number one on the list most days. My wife kind of thinks a little bit like Ezra. Ezra is not concerned with chronology. In fact, he flips back and forth between two different generations. The first generation was in the 400s B.C., uh, sorry, in the 500s B.C. was the first generation. We count backwards in the B.C.s. The 500s B.C., was that generation was given the task of rebuilding the temple. Okay, just kind of keep that in your mind. First generation, their task was to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. This was the task that God had given that generation. But the next generation, the one of which Ezra was a part, their task was to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So two different tasks, two different generations and Ezra, throughout this book, skips back and forth, and even in the same paragraph at times, he will be mixing together because his, his goal was not to give us a chronology of events, a series of events. He wasn't concerned about this happened, then this happened, then this happened. He was trying to teach the people about God's faithfulness, God's providence. He was, he was demonstrating themes of, of how God responds when his people are being opposed by their enemies. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he was, he was talking about themes of celebration. When God breaks through and does something amazing, how we as God's people are called upon by God to celebrate the work of God. And so these themes come out, but he flips back and forth between generations, and it can get kind of confusing. Let me show you a timeline of, of events that will help you in grasping this little book. The main devastating event in the history of Israel occurred in the year 586 B.C. 
That was the year that King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world at that time, uh, the, the king of the Babylonians, marched into Jerusalem with his armies and utterly decimated the place. They tore down the walls. There was, the Bible says there was not one stone left on another. They tore down the walls. They killed a large percentage of the people. They carried the ones that were remaining off into captivity. But the biggest thing was the unthinkable happened when he destroyed the temple. Because you see, the, the temple represented the presence of God among his people. And for the temple to be destroyed, what that meant for the Jewish people there in 586 B.C. was this. Well, surely now God has forsaken us. The presence of God among his people, that symbol of the temple has been destroyed. Surely we have been forsaken. And it says when they got to Babylon that they sat down by the rivers of Babylon and they wept as they remembered all that they had lost. 586 B.C., a very dark time. Fast forward about 50 years to 538 B.C., and you meet a guy named King Cyrus, Cyrus of the Persians. The Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians. Now the Persians are the new world power. And God raises up King Cyrus, this pagan king who did not even believe in the one true and living God, who was serving a variety of gods in various places. He raised up King Cyrus. And I say raised up because you look back to the prophet Isaiah, who was prophesying in the 700s B.C., 200 years before Cyrus was even born. And Isaiah spoke, in Isaiah 44, 45, he spoke and said, I'm going to raise up a guy named Cyrus who's going to be a deliverer for my people. He's going to bring you back from captivity and going to restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and restore the worship, and restore my worship there in Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, that was before Jerusalem was ever destroyed, before the temple was ever torn apart. Isaiah spoke and said, Cyrus is going to be the one God's going to use. And that's exactly what happened. 538 B.C., Cyrus comes on the scene. And in his very first year ruling over Judea, he called the people to return and to rebuild the temple. 515 B.C., the temple is complete. Worship is restored. Amazing things are happening. But the walls around Jerusalem were still in shambles. And so they were still prone to attack. So in 458 B.C., God sends Ezra that we're going to see today in chapter 7. It's interesting, this book's called Ezra. You don't even meet Ezra until chapter 7. He doesn't even come on the scene until the book's almost completed, and he wraps up the end of this book in a very short amount of time. And one year encompasses these last three chapters of the book of Ezra, that year 458 B.C. And then the next book that we see, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes about 15 years later, and we see him rebuilding those walls. So I hope that helps you. I hope it didn't confuse you any more than you already were, but I hope that helps you to kind of get a grasp of what we're going to look at this morning. If you can, stand with me in honor of God's Word this morning as we share these scriptures together. Ezra chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of God. Now after this, again the year 458 B.C., now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. If you wonder if I got any of those names right, they're all dead and they don't care. So <laughs> I'm just making it up as I go along. All right. Verse 6, I think he takes a breath here, and he says, This Ezra, okay, descendant of all those dudes, this Ezra 
He went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Take note of that phrase. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. You're going to see it two more times. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king, 458 B.C. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up to Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. There it is again. For the good hand of his God was on him, leading in that four-month journey. Listen to verse 10. This is our key verse for the day. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Take that in for a minute. Ezra had set his heart to study the word of God, to do what it said, and to teach it to Israel. And then right after this, in verse 11, it begins a letter from the king. We're not going to read all this today. I'm going to give you a summary of what takes place. King Artaxerxes writes a letter on behalf of Ezra, enabling him to go back and do this work in Jerusalem. Here's the summary of the letter. First of all, he says, Ezra, here's your task. Go to Jerusalem and take, any, take along with you any Jews who want to go. Any Jews in my kingdom are welcome to travel back with you, and we'll find out that many of them did. Here's your, here's your second part. See how things are there in Jerusalem. Take stock of the situation and also take along these various offerings that you're going to offer there at the temple. Thirdly, buy whatever you need, as much as you need to make sacrifices to your God and to intercede on my behalf. The king asks for the prayers of Ezra and his followers. Pray for us, make sacrifices, ask God for his favor on our kingdom the next point he makes is he says this at the end of the letter, and appoint godly leaders for the people. And here's the qualification for those leaders. Men who know the word of God. That's the only qualification given. Men who know the word of God. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And finally, he has a little addendum there in the midst of the letter. In order for this to be a, a letter of, pa- of safe passage for Ezra, he puts a paragraph in there to the government leaders over the region of Judea. And here's, here's the word he says to them. Government leaders, stay out of Ezra's way, provide for his every need, and if you don't do so, here's what I'm going to do to you. You can read it there in the letter. I'm going to take a post out of your home, and I'm going to impale you on it and turn your home into a dunghill. Pile of poop. That's what's going to happen to you if you don't obey. It's in the scriptures there. You can read it for yourself. We're just not going to read that part this morning. All right. And finally, look at verse 27. We'll finish up here. Verse 27 and 28. Blessed be the Lord. This is Ezra's words. The first one spoken by Ezra in this book. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. There's the third time. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And you can be seated. Father, as we take notice 
as we observe this breakthrough that you brought about through the life of this man named Ezra. God, I would make this prayer for us today. Would you give us a heart like Ezra's? A heart that loves your word. A heart that loves your people. A heart that loves you. That finds delight in the things that you delight in. God, would you change our hearts? And as a result, Lord, would you change our actions, change our focus, and fix us upon the author and the perfecter of our faith? Lord, we we do look to Ezra this morning as our example, but an even greater example stands before us. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So enable us this morning to walk after him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the key truth for today. This will guide us through our time in the Word. We find here in Ezra 7, as we're introduced to this man named Ezra, he says, it says of him that he, he stands out. Stands out as an example of the kind of person that God uses to bring about big breakthroughs. The New Testament is so clear that God uses ordinary people in extraordinary things. And we've already seen in the book of Ezra that God can use anybody he chooses to use. He's already used three different pagan kings, kings who didn't even believe in him, who who were just wanting to get whatever they could out of life and to have people under their thumbs. God has used them to bring about his purposes in the world. He is the sovereign God who is in control of all things. But the common pattern in the work of God is this. There is a certain type of individual that God chooses to use more than any other. And I want you to see some of the characteristics of that type of individual. If if this morning you would say, you know what, I want to do something great for the Lord. I'd love to see God use me to do something powerful like he did in Ezra's day. Then let us walk in those steps and see the man that God blesses, the man that God uses What kind of man was he? Look at the first few verses there, verses 1 through 6. We see he was a man of the word. This is going to be the bulk of our message today. Above everything else that we learn about Ezra is this was a man who loved the word of God. He was a man of the word. It says there in verse 6, after we've given, been given his, his genealogy there that established the fact that he was a priest in the line of Aaron, that meant that he, was, that he was worthy, that he was able to communicate and teach the word of God to the people. He had the right to do so, not just by genealogy, though, but by his devotion. And you see there in verse 6, it says, This Ezra, he went up from Babylonia. What was he like? He was a scribe. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Skilled in the word of God. So we think about the word of God this morning. I want to share with you a verse from Hebrews 4.12 that will help us in understanding what we're going to talk about. Hebrews 4.12 says this about the word of God. It says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so the Bible says about itself that the word of God is like what? A sword. 
Now, now I remember when I was growing up, uh, Neil's not the only youth pastor that looks ridiculous at times, most of the time for Neil, but it's not the only one that looks ridiculous sometimes. I remember, I only remember a couple of messages that my youth pastor uh, gave when I was growing up. I remember the one that he gave when he left from First Timothy uh, chapter 4, sorry, Second Timothy chapter 4, uh, about finishing well, and, and I remember that last message he ever gave to us. But I also remember this one message that he gave uh, that was based in this verse and, and also uh, Ephesians chapter 6, where you see the armor of God. And he taught us about the armor of God, how, how each of us is meant as followers of Jesus Christ to be clothed in the armor of God. And it's this picture of a, of a Roman soldier that's got this helmet and this breastplate. And, and he's, he's fitted out with the, word, with, the, with the armor of God in order to be able to do the work of God. And one thing he noted was this. He says, you look at the pieces of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, you notice that all of the pieces of the armor serve a defensive purpose except for one. You don't go beating somebody with your helmet. The shield is meant to ward off attacks. Everything is defensive except for one piece, and that is the sword. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that the sword in the armor of God, it says it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the only offensive weapon given to the followers of Christ. Now, I believe that all of those pieces of the armor, as he talks about at the end of that section of Ephesians 6, all of them are summed up and, and empowered by prayer. So the Word of God and prayer all, always come together one and the same. But we we see this picture of, of the Word of God. And my, I remember my youth pastor was preaching about this. And he took his Bible and he began to do some like sword thrusts with his Bible. It looked really ridiculous. But to this day, I have not forgotten the picture of my youth pastor thrusting at us with his Bible as he was quoting Scripture after Scripture that he had hidden in his heart. And he was sharing with us how those Scriptures had led him through difficult times in his life, how they had helped him to overcome temptation, how they had helped him to overcome discouragement, how they, how they enabled him to make wise decisions. And as he was thrusting with that Bible time and time again, looking utterly ridiculous, what was happening in the life of this young man was I was seeing the power of the Word of God. And God began in those moments to, to give me a new desire to know the Word. We think about the Word of God this morning. Here's, here's the biggest question I think we need to ask. So we look at Ezra, a man of the Word. We think about what it means for us to be a people of the Word. And here's the question of the day. What do we do with the Word of God? Is it enough for us just to have a Bible that we carry to church or is on our iPad is it enough for us just to possess it? Or is there more that we must do with the Word of God in order to be the people of God and to do the things that God has called us to do? I'm going to use this acronym SWORD as we looked at Hebrews 4 and Ephesians 6. I'm going to use this acronym to, to look at what Ezra did with the Word and what I believe we too are called upon to do with this Word. First of all, we must study it. Look at verse 10. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it and to teach it. To study, to do, and to teach. First of all, to study it. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that at a very base level, we've got to read it. That there is no studying apart from reading. That's where it begins, but it doesn't stop there. We read the Word of God, and then, as Psalm 1 talks about, we meditate on the Word of God. What does that mean? 
Well, it's not this Middle Eastern picture of the ohms and your fingers put together in a weird fashion. It's not that. Christian meditation is not an emptying of your mind. Christian meditation is a filling of your mind with the Word of God. So I read the Word of God, and then I dwell for a time to think about what is being said, to engage the mind that God has given you to consider the Word of God to memorize the Word of God, to meditate, to think upon what does this mean? What does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for me as an individual? And how can I become obedient to it, as we'll talk about in just a minute? We study it. One way that we study it, I believe, is we write it. It says there that Ezra was a scribe. Well, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, the, the scribes were a group. In fact, Ezra was one of the first of the scribes. And we see and even in Jesus' day, these guys known as the scribes who had pretty much gone astray by the time Jesus came on the scene. But, but Ezra was the first of these guys that their goal, their role in the, in the community of faith was this. Seeing that there were no printing presses, there was no copy machine in those days, the scribes were given the task of repeatedly copying down the Word of God. By this time in history, they had at least the first five books of the Old Testament, if not a little more beyond that. They had at least the first five books of the Old Testament, and Ezra spent a good portion of his life simply copying down, writing down the Word of God. Mark Batterson says this. He says, the shortest pencil is better than the longest memory. How many of you have experienced that in your life? Yeah, if the older you get, the more you forget, right? That's exactly what happens in our lives. But there's something about the way God has created us that when we write something down, we tend to forget it less. Now, you'll notice something that that I've practiced even since I was a teenager. I started this as a teenager. Is Every time you see me with my non-preaching Bible, it's a little smaller than this one, a smaller print. But when I have my Bible with me, I always have a journal. There's always a little notebook that I carry around with me. And that's not for me to write down all the things that happened in my life. I don't use it for that purpose. That journal serves the purpose of me writing down things that I'm learning from the Word of God. Every preacher that I sit under and listen to, every time that I'm exploring the Word of God for myself, notes that I'm making for for sermons that I'm preparing, they're all in that little notebook. And I love these notebooks so much that on the back of them I always write, if you find this, please return it to me. And there's treasures in there. There's things that that God has taught me that I've got boxes of these things since being a teenager. And and journaling may never be listed among uh, the spiritual disciplines in the Scriptures, but it's certainly been one in my life. Because I've found when I write things down, They tend to stick with me. When I don't write them down, they don't. Writing down prayers, writing down scriptures, writing down things that you're learning from the Lord, write it down. You'll be much more likely to remember it and to practice it. So we study it, we write it. Thirdly, what else do we do with the Word of God? We must obey it. We must obey the Word of God. Here it says there in verse 10 again that Ezra, he, he set his heart to do what? To study the law and to do it. There are two types of folks that read the Word of God, and James talks about them in his letter in the New Testament. He says there, there's one type of, of person that studies the Word of God in order that they might obey the Word of God, and there's another type that he says it's kind of like the dude that he wakes up in the morning and he looks rough, as some of us often do. I know nobody in this room struggles with this, but there's mornings I get up and look in the mirror and I go, ouch, that is just not good. And my wife would give an amen on that. She's saying, ouch, too. What did I marry? This crazy 
fraggly-headed guy and breath is not pleasant, nothing is going well, and you're going, it's going to take a little work, right? Well, James says that there are some who read the Word of God in this way. They look into the Word of God, and it's like a mirror, and they see themselves in the mirror, and then they turn around and go off, and they don't do anything about it. It's like waking up in the morning, you look in the mirror, and you're going, man, this needs some work, but then you go, eh, oh well. And you just walk out the door, and you offend everyone in your life by your appearance and your breath. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happens in the life of believers. When we read this word and we don't obey this word, when we simply read this word and, and kind of give the, eh, well, whatever, and move on, we become offensive. We become offensive to this world. Now, there is an offense to the gospel that is necessary. It is offensive when we say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, but that is a necessary part of the gospel. We need not add unnecessary offense to the gospel by the fact that we are living hypocritically, not obeying the word of God. Number one reason that unchurched folks give for not stepping foot in these doors is this. Too many hypocrites. It's not worship, it's too early or too loud. It's not anything, the number one answer given is, I just see too many hypocrites in the church. Too many folks that say one thing and do another. Now on a very real level, let's not leave ourselves in a place of guilt here. On a very real level, all of us, all of us suffer from the sin of hypocrisy. None of us is 100% faithful to be the person that we say we are in Christ Jesus. That's why we need to be sanctified. That's why we need to grow in Christ-likeness. That's why we need this word to transform us more and more into the image of Christ. We must obey it. No, it doesn't stop there. It says he also set his heart to teach it. And I'm using the word relay because I, I kind of see this race that the Apostle Paul talks about. And in, in the race, there's this passing of the baton. It's, and it's a beautiful thing that, that reminds me of what we must do with this word. It's the passing of the baton on to the next generation. It's looking down to those that are some steps behind you that are running after you and it's reaching back with the Word of God and passing to them the baton of the Word. Teaching them the things that you have, that you have been taught. Raising your children to know the Word of God, to love the Word of God, and to obey the Word of God. This relay race of the, of the Christian life, it means it's not all about me. You see, up to this point, I can, get, I can get convinced that it's all about me. I study the Word of God so that, so that I can be blessed. I, I write it down so that I can remember it. I even obey it that God will be happy with me. But then I remember that what, what Ezra demonstrates for us, that we're also called upon to teach it. You say, well, wait a minute, I don't, I don't have the gift of teaching. Now, now, there is a gift of teaching talked about in the New Testament. But that's why I use the word relay, because in Titus chapter 2, it gives us the indication that every follower of Christ is meant to be a teacher. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find yourself teaching a Sunday school class or, or on this platform, but what it means is that we see our role as being those who relay the Word of God to others. We pass it on to our children, as Deuteronomy 6 says. We pass it on to our coworkers and our friends. We, we act as a Paul to a Timothy in our lives, looking for someone to mentor in the faith. We see this as part of our role, as Ezra did. He said he set his heart to teach the Word of God to Israel. Why? Because they needed a teacher. They needed a teacher. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And finally, we must delight. 
in the Word. You say, well, where did you see that? Look at verse 10 again. What was the first thing that it says Ezra did? For Ezra had set his heart to study, to do, and to teach the Word. He had set his heart. I, I think about that phrase, and it reminds me of something I do every night when I set my alarm clock. Now, sometimes I get really upset with my alarm clock because it goes off at a time that I did not intend it to. But is that the alarm clock's fault or is that my fault? It's my fault. User error, okay? Or sometimes, more often than not, it doesn't go off when I intended it to because I forget that a.m. and p.m. are about 12 hours different, okay? That happens every once in a while. It hasn't happened lately. Um, But... You think about setting your alarm clock. The alarm clock goes off whenever it was set, the time for which it was set, right? You set it for 6 a.m., the alarm clock goes off at 6 a.m. It simply does what the user set it to do. And church, listen to me. I think this is probably one of the key points today that I'd like you to take away with you and think on. Your heart does exactly what you set it to do. You see, God created us in such a way that we will delight in something. We will be driven by something. We will be devoted to something. It's just the way we're created. Now, some of us are more driven than others. You see some people that are so passionate, whether it's about running or music or this or that. And some, as Ezra was, is passionate about the Word of God. You see over in Nehemiah 8, this powerful picture of Ezra standing before the people. And for eight hours, he reads to them the Word of God and proclaims the Word. Yeah, an eight-hour church service. And nobody leaves. In silence, they stand just to hear God's word. They hear Ezra preaching the word of God and proclaiming the word. And everyone is there. No one moves. Everyone is there. And he explains to them how they can practice these things. And the people actually did it. This is amazing revival that takes place. Because Ezra was passionate for the word of God. The reality is for you, for every person in this room, you will be devoted, set to something. And you will go off after whatever you were set for, just like your alarm clock. The question of your life is this, to what will you be set? Ezra was set upon the word of God, and he brought amazing changes in his generation. Young people, I want to talk to you all just for a minute. I'm going to say this to you. Some of you, I believe, you you want to have influence in your generation. I believe that's in your heart. You think about Ezra here, a man who grew up in in Babylon in a very place of great wickedness. And in order to have influence on his generation, what did he do? He took the right classes, right? Got the right GPA, surrounded himself with the right people, got into the in crowd, wore the right clothes. We could go on with this, right? Did he do any of those things? Young men and women and and older men and women in the back here, I want you to hear this. If we would influence our generation, we must walk in the footsteps of Ezra and become a people of the word. It almost seems nonsensical. It's not the way the world does anything. You want, you want to influence people in our world. The worldly way is you surround yourself with the right people. 
You take the right classes, you get the right degrees, you hope for a little luck along the way, and you position yourself, right? You position yourself. But what Ezra did is he allowed God to position him, and he simply focused on the Word of God. It's a whole different way of thinking, one that doesn't even seem to make sense in light of worldly wisdom. But Ezra understood that worldly wisdom is not God's wisdom. There's a way that seems right to man. There's a way that seems to make sense to man. He says that way it ends in destruction. But there's a greater way, a simpler way, a clearer way. It's focus on the Word of God. Devote yourself to studying it, to writing it, to obeying it, to relaying it to others, to delighting in it. That your heart burns. It's like, it's like the prophet Jeremiah said, the word of God is like a fire in my bones. I've got to let it out. May that be true of us. And the blessing of Psalm 1 will be true for all who walk in this way. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. You want to be blessed by God? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight, here's the word again, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He goes on to say, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, even the psalmist understood there's two ways to live your life. There's two ways to live your life. Either in the word of God or in the ways of this world. Two more things and then we'll finish up this morning. Ezra was a man of the word. Ezra was a man who worked. And worked hard. You're saying, well, where do you see that? Doesn't sound real hard. You just study the Bible. No big deal. Go back and do some preaching. Is that really all Ezra did? What you see in the letter to, of King Artaxerxes in those intervening verses between 11 and, and verse 26, and then over in chapter 8, the fleshing out of what happened as Ezra went from uh, Babylon, Babylon to Jerusalem, here's Ezra's task that you see in the pages of Scripture. Ezra led 1,500 people carrying approximately 10 billion, that's billion with a B, so much so that scholars have looked at this and gone, that seems like that can't possibly be right. Ezra carried back, him and the 1,500 carried back more silver to Jerusalem than the entire revenue of the tax system in the land they were going to collected in a year's time. $10 billion worth of goods on a 900-mile trip. It took him four months through hostile territory that was known for bandits and thieves. Now, how many want to sign on for that task? you got to gather together 1,500 people. You're going to be given $10 billion worth of stuff, which sounds great, right? Until you realize that you're getting ready to go on a four-month journey through hostile territory and Ezra was just bold enough to say to the king, when the king offered to send along an army with him to protect him along the way, Ezra says to the king, get this, he says, listen, king, I don't need that because God's on my side. That may just sound foolish to many of us. I mean, take the army, dude. Nehemiah, in the next generation, he takes the army. 
Nehemiah takes the army, but Ezra says, no. God will protect us, and he did. But Ezra worked hard. Ezra was an example of what Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he said this. He said, pray as though everything depended upon God. Why do you pray that way? Because everything depends upon God. Pray as though everything in your life depended upon God. And then, at the same time, here's the balance. And work as though everything depended upon you. Now here's the imbalance that happens in our lives. For some of us, we work as though everything depends upon us and we act in the end as though we've been the guy who pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're the self-made man. Everything I have, I've gotten for myself. And, And there's this pride that erupts out of us because we've been so focused on the second half that we've never done the first half. We've never recognized that every good and perfect gift, everything that you have in your life was given to you by the God who owns it all. You see, it'll keep you humble when you pray. Because prayer is dependence upon the God who gave you everything in the first place. But there's that imbalance. But then in the church, what we so often see in the church is we see this spiritual laziness. So we pray, we pray as if we're entrusting things to God, and then we kick it back in the spiritual lazy boy, and we just expect that everything's just going to come to us. It's like this picture of Ezra. He's in the king's courts. He's, he's thinking, I really need to get back to Jerusalem and do some work for God there, so, so I'm going to pray about that, but then I'm just going to sit around and wait for something to happen. No, Ezra had to go and ask the king. Ezra had to take the steps to Jerusalem. Ezra had to do the work. In church, we ought to be among the hardest-working people on the planet But far too often, Christians are accused of rampant laziness. Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, that encompasses everything, right? At the factory, in your home, students in your school, even in the class that you despise more than any other, work, whatever you do, work heartily. It means with your whole heart. Be devoted to your work. Do this as for the Lord and not for men. That'll change the way you do everything in your life. That'll change the way you brush your teeth. There was a guy named St. Francis that determined that everything that he did, even, he even talks about shaving his face, even down to shaving his face, which is one of the things I hate most in the world, even down to shaving his face, he said, I want to shave my face in such a way that I'm doing it for the Lord, which sounds utterly ridiculous to us, but he got it. He understood that when you follow Colossians chapter 3, when you follow that in your life, it changes the way you do everything. It's not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Not just a paycheck, folks. The inheritance of the King of kings and the Lord of lords has been promised to you. So we work hard because we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally this morning, Ezra was a man of the word who worked hard and who worshipped. You see his heart in his first words. I want to read them to you again. First words that we hear out of Ezra's lips in this book, he says, Blessed be the Lord. Not just seeking to get a blessing from God, as so many do in our age, but no, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. He recognized God's hand in all of these events. To beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. 
Then he says, and I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Two quick things about Ezra as a worshiper. You're going to see more of this before we finish this book. First of all, he praised the providence of God. You see, Ezra got it. He got the picture that everything that he had had come to him as a gift of God. He was not the self-made man. He pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. That everything he had had come to him as a gift of God. Yes, he had worked hard to study the word of the Lord. But even that was the gift of God. The very fact that he had the word of God in his day was because God had protected his word from the Babylonians. Because he had preserved his word through that time of exile. And Ezra recognized, he praised the providence of God. He understood what Paul wrote when he said, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Are we trusting God for our provision as well? And secondly, he recognized the righteous hand of God in his life. Two times prior to this, verse 6 and verse 9, it says, and the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra, But you kind of get to wonder, did Ezra realize it? And then verse 28 comes. He saw it. And this is no prideful, puffed up, yeah, God's with me, what are y'all going to do? It's not that. This is one of the most humbling words in all of Scripture. The hand of my God was upon me. And he recognized the grace of God, that God had every right to leave him. Ezra was not a man without sin. He was simply a man that loved the word of God and had been redeemed by the grace of God. And he says, it's a grace of God that the hand of God is upon me, that he's not left me, he's not forsaken me. He's called me out to lead his people. Everything that I have is a gift from God and I praise him for it. He recognized the righteous hand of God upon him. And if we would see the things that Ezra saw, if we would see God bring amazing and miraculous breakthroughs in our lives, in our family. And the word of God calls upon us to say this. Will you dare to walk in the steps in which Ezra walked? I think Ezra had this mentality of Psalm 23, this assurance that we see in Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness And mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love the fact that that verse doesn't start with maybe. I really hope. Surely. How do you live in the place of surely? You want to live in the place of surely where you're not tossed back and forth by the waves of your life? You want to live in the place of security where you know what you know and you live on what you know and you live within the realm of what you know because what you know came from Almighty God? Then devote yourself as Ezra did to knowing this word. Because in this word, you come to know the one true and living God. It's not about the book. It's about the God of the book. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. But we find the God of the Bible in the Bible. This is his revelation. If you would know him, this is not optional equipment. If you would dwell in the place of surely, this is not something that you can take or leave. And I can guarantee you that the God who created you desires you to know Him. Not just as an acquaintance, 
but as an intimate companion. Not just as somebody that you heard about from your grandmother, but as someone you've come to know personally. But you will only come to know him in that way when this word takes up residence in your daily life. You study it, you write it, you obey it, you relay it to others, and at the end of it all, you delight. You delight in the word of your heavenly Father that reveals His face, His character, His attributes to you. And then you too can say, surely, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will have the promise that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But church, let us not forget this. Forever begins today. Let's get away from the pie and the sky by and by mentality and realize forever begins today. Someone in this room needs to make a new start today. Turn your attention toward Christ and to allow this word to become so central to your existence. It's no longer a peripheral book that you throw up on the shelf and pull off on Sunday mornings. It becomes day by day. Early in the morning you rise to meet him in his word and in prayer. Late in the evening before you drift off to sleep, this book often finds its way laying on your chest as you doze off on the pillow. You delight in this word and the God of this word begins to do a work in you that you never thought possible. In this moment, would you just bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? I just want to ask you a few simple questions as we finish up today. As we respond to the word in this, in this last song together. Three simple questions this morning that I just want you to ponder on. Number one, in the quietness of this moment, what place does the Word of God have in your daily life? Please don't hear me asking that question out of a place of guilting you into anything. If you walk away from this place today simply feeling guilt, then you've missed what God has for you. The Word of God was never meant to leave us in guilt. It's always meant to bring us to grace. So don't be like that man that looks in the mirror of God's perfect Word and then turns away and does nothing with it, just goes away carrying the bags of guilt. Leave the bags of guilt at the foot of the cross and cling to the Savior who died for you and rose again so that you could have life in Him. He is the living Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld Him full of grace and truth, not full of guilt. He took your guilt so that you could have life. So what place does the Word of God have in your life? Secondly, this morning, Are you working as unto the Lord? In your workplace, and that, that boss that gets on your last nerve, the, the, those, those co-workers that you can't hardly stand to think about seeing tomorrow morning, 
Would you allow God to transform your thinking? And to work as unto the Lord and see the blessing of that. And finally, where is your heart? Where is your worship? Ezra was a man who looked at the course of his life and didn't say, look how great I am. Look how hard I studied. Look how much work I did. No, Ezra's response was, blessed be the Lord. Praise to Him. He has been faithful even when I was unfaithful. He has shown me grace even when I was wrapped up in my guilt. He took my shame. He took my sin. He took the wrath of God for me. And so I praise Him with the words of my mouth, with the meditations of my heart, with the seconds of my life. I praise Him. And all the more as I look expectantly to His return. Father God, would You lead us in this time of response. As the song says that we would come as we are, but Lord, I know that Your will will not be to leave us as we are, but to transform us as the renew, by the renewing of our mind that we might test and approve that which is Your good and pleasing and perfect will, that we might know You and be known by You, that we might rise up in this generation as a people like Ezra, called by Your name, called out from among the world, called to live according to Your Word and to see You bring about in our time breakthroughs beyond our imagining. And this we pray in Jesus' name.